Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. This week we determinedly continue our microscopic reading of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital and pick up where we left off in Chapter 7. This turned out to be a monstrously long episode, so I've split it into two parts to protect your mental health, dear listeners. We dive deep into a number of tables, which I've used as the graphic for this episode, for those who don't have the book to follow along with. You can also listen to the unedited episode on YouTube, where you can see the sections under discussion. If you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook. This week, I have two new Patreon subscribers to thank. Cell W and Alex Lee. Gurav Mila Mila Mahagiv. I am planning on launching another reading group once this series is completed. Those taking part in this reading series will be limited to the patrons and PayPal subscribers. Hopefully it will also include some of my existing podcasting colleagues. Current books in the running for discussion are Capital Volume 1, Henrik Grossman's The Law of Accumulation and the Breakdown of the Capitalist System, Randall Ray's Understanding Modern Money and Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy. So, if you are interested in partaking, you can sign up for as little as $1 an episode over on Patreon. If you are a patron, you can also suggest other titles for consideration. Okay, enough of such huckster capitalist nonsense. To the discussion. Hello and welcome to part nine. That's right, you heard it here first, part nine of the TSSI series. Today we have a small panel, small but high in quality. We've got the Tablemeister himself here for a table fest. Emmanuel, say hi. Hi, this is Emmanuel in Stockholm, Sweden, trying to simultaneously value my love for this show and my just wishing for this goddamn book to be over. <laughs> Join the club. We're nearly halfway there. And next, over to Lexi. Hey, this is Lexi in the shadow of New York City, temporally reflecting on how much time in my 20s I'm spending reading Marxist value theory. The answer to that is not enough. Okay, <laughs> last week, last time we got, we just did the introduction parts to chapter seven. And today we're going to be hitting some lovely, lovely tables. So the last time we ran through this first table, but I think we'll we'll just have a quick go over of it again. We're setting up a number of tables here so we can look at what happens to the falling rate of profit in cases where we do our inputs and outputs simultaneously. And then we're going to have a look at how they get on when we do it the right way and do it temporally. And then also we're going to involve a, a complicated example, finally, which will show us what happens in the case of where we have a bit of inflation going on and what that means to the rate of profit. Okay, so we're going to be using our, our melt and it's going to be mashing our heads. But we've been working hard in the last few hours, 24 hours, trying to get our heads around the final table for the fifth time. And I think it's finally sunk in. So this first example, 
we have is where we've got an economy where we have workers getting no real pay and everything being pushed back into the system. So let's have a look. Let's read this little bit here. Okay, so here we go. The simplest one-sector corn economy with no fixed capital, so all of the year's output is plowed back in as seed corn, and all the output is invested as seed. The farm workers and farm owners consume none. So that's our setup, okay? And we're going to have a look at what happens in the third year. We're going to have an increase in productivity. Okay, so we have a look at this. Who wants to talk through this table? How about you, Lexi? You know this table. You've done it before. Putting you on the spot now. Earth calling, Lexi. Just trying to <laughs> getting my protein pills and putting my helmet on. Okay, so let's talk through the table. In year one, we have seed corn at 64. Always forget the, what these things mean. So NP equals PS. That's going to be physical surplus equals NP. Net profit. Awesome. So that's going to be 16 for the first year. That corn output, which is just seed corn plus the net profit. So that'll be 80. And then we have our rate of profit, which is the physical, physical surplus. surplus over the <laughs> seed corn. That's yeah. 25%. Uh, and then living labor is 80. Then we have um, year two. We get, I guess, what, 80 is from corn output from the previous year. That's our new seed corn. We plug it in. Our, our net net profit is 20. We add those together, get 100. And then physical surplus over seed corn, our rate of profit is 25. One thing to notice here is that in the rate of profit equation, there is nothing to do with labor. Right. So it doesn't matter. There's no labor time thing there. So we just had the outputs in physical quantities. And we'll yeah. see what happens now in year three. Let's have a look here. You go yeah. again there, Lexi, year three. Yes. So in year three, we have our corn output from the previous year becomes our seed corn at 100. Then our net profit or fiscal surplus is 30. Add them together for our corn output for year three. That's 130. And now our rate of profit has risen. It is 30%. Again, yeah, living labor 100. Cool. That's just its own little thing. Like Tom was saying, bracket it off. As well here in the setup for this table, we're told that technological progress starts and net product instead of increasing by 25% like the living laborer is it's now increasing by 50% per year and labor is staying static yeah actually i was going to say there in in years 3 and 4 yeah you now see stagnation in living labor where it was i guess stipulated to grow before yeah that was a stipulation before just to sort of recap to 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 anyone who might be listening but not looking at at this at year one, we have 16 bushels of corn in profits with an investment of 64. And year two, we have 20 bushels of corn in profits with an initial investment of 80. But then technological progress happens and we're able to get 30 bushels of corn with an investment of 100. And then we get 45 with an investment of 130. So like the return on our initial investment increases over time from year three is the thing here, kind of. Yeah, so year four, we kind of extend the same thing type of happens and we end up with another increase in the rate of profit. So yeah. our living labor is staying the same, but our technological progress is, is hitting in. And basically... 
our rate of profit is going up. So what we're seeing here is that in physical quantities, if we're being like a physicalist, our rate of profit is improving. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because we're so, getting more bushels of corn per per, per, per unit needed work. Invested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're getting more for less, which is what the physicalist rate of profit is all about. Yeah, the technical composition of capital increases in both years because these are labor-saving changes, tech changes in Marxist sense. So and I think that's the whole point of the labor assumptions is just to demonstrate that even if the amount of living labor stops growing and stagnates, you can still have a an increasing technological composition capital, which is the ratio of means of production seed, seed corn to workers. I was trying to figure out how the living labor, like, why is he putting up there? And why is he stipulating it instead of letting it happen systemically? Well, he's that's just, why. Yeah, he's putting that in there for us just to just to mm -hmm. see that the labor, what the, what's happening to labor and what's happened to the physical rate. And these tables, as we go along, they kind of combine. So we're using the same values from different tables to get more complicated stuff. So the living labor will be able to just keep an eye on. I think yeah. that's what he's building this up for. The, the point being is that the, quote, technical composition of capital, quote, can increase without Marx's notion of a rate of profit increasing. That's like mathematically what this will end up meaning, but we're only focusing on the physical quantities here. Right. Let's keep going. Next point, 7.3.2. We, here we he's going to get in and start talking about how the simultaneist dudes equate their price rate and value rate of profit. So let's have a read of this. As a result of the technological progress, the physical rate of profit rises from 25 to 30 to 34.6. According to all simultaneous interpretations of Marx's value theory, the new interpretation and the simultaneous single system interpretation, so the SSIs, not the TSSIs, as well as the simultaneous dual system interpretations, the value rate of profit follows precisely the same trajectory as does the nominal price rate of profit. These prove that Okisha was right and Marx was wrong. Rising productivity tends to raise, not lower the rate of profit. I think the best thing to do is jump into the next table yeah, and have a look at it. Okay, now let me get out one of these beautiful graphics that I got ready. Here we go. Let's, let's zoom on in. Mm -hmm. Let's zoom that's some, in. That's a nice table. Yeah, thanks very much. You're beautiful. Okay, <laughs> now, table 7.2. That was very, very high, higher than I expected. Simultaneous value rate and the price rate of profit. What do we have here? He is going to say, why are we starting with P equals 5? Let's sort that bit out first. So if you imagine it, we've done 80 hours of new labor and what is our, our surplus was 16. So the price of each one is the 80 hours divided by the 16. So it's five pound per new unit. Yes. Okay. So that's our P. P starts at five. It took us 80 hours to produce a surplus of 16 bushels of corn. Each bushel is five. The previous 64 bushels of corn we see here from table one, they just transfer their existing value. They don't add new value. Okay, now we've got our capital. So that's our price times the seed capital, which is 64 times 5, which is 320. Okay, we got our new value, 
which is living labor, which is 80 hours of living labor, or otherwise you could look at it, it'd be like NP times P. Also, then we have our, our, our total value then is going to be our new value and our old value, yeah? So it's going to be our 320 plus 80. <clears throat> it's going to be the value transferred by the seed corn plus the new value added. So that's what Marx's law says, that every commodity is the value transferred by constant capital and the new value added by living labor. Okay. So now let's have a look at, at the next line. So we've got this time we got 100 divided by 20 gives us stayed the same. The price has stayed the same. Our capital is 400 quid. So that's our A times 5, 400. Our living labor is 100. And then we've got 500. Rate of profit stays the same. So everything is lovely jubbly. No changes here okay. at all yet. Now, at year three, we're going to see there is going to be an increase in the productivity. So now we're is going to go to 30. Okay, so this is the bad boy. Something's going to start happening here. Let's have a look. So our living labor is 100 this time, and we're dividing that by our net product, which is 30. So our price now has gone to 3.333. Our capital is 100 times 3.333. Our yep. living labor is still 100, and we have our 100 plus 333. So we've got 433 here, and our rate of profit is 100 over C. 333 so our rate of profit's yeah. gone up so so let's let's just stop here for a moment and, and 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 see what has happened here so year two and year three we're doing the exact same amount of labor we're still doing 100 hours worth of labor but instead of getting a surplus of 20 now we get a surplus of 30 for the same amount of work what does Marx's law of value say? Well, it says that with increasing productivity, we're going to have the price drop as well. And it does. So the simultaneous price here drops, just as Marx says. It drops from 5 to 3.33. Blah, blah, blah. So, so far, so good. However, something strange happens, and that is with the capital invested. So last year, we received 500 bucks. So it would stand to reason that this year, because we're reinvesting everything, right? So this year, the C here, our capital investment, should be 500. But it's not. It's 333 for some mysterious reason. So it seems to be doing some things right in that we're having increasing productivity because we're getting more for the same amount of work. And the price is dropping, but something strange has happened to our capital investment. To see why this happens is because what, what is going on here is that in simultaneous valuation, if the price drops to 3.333, that means that your capital investment is 333. So your capital investment drops as a result of the price dropping. And this is why the rate of profit rises. Remember, the rate of profit is how much do we get back on our investment, right? So we're planting 100. We're getting 30 back on it, right? So it's the 
profits divided by the investment. And since simultaneous valuation here drops the capital invested to 333 instead of 500, we're seeing a rise in the rate of profit. Okay, can we read this section here? So once technological progress begins, however, the, t the capital advanced of one year falls below the previous year's total value of output, even though all that output is being reinvested as seed. For example, 100 bushels of output of year two, all of which are planted as, year in, as seed in year three, are sold for 500 bucks and bought for 500 bucks. But what is recorded in the simultaneous books is an advance of only $333. And in fact, one third of the purchase price has vanished into thin air. The miracle of simultaneous valuation has caused it to disappear. Since a bushel of corn is worth $3.33 at the end of year three, a bushel of corn purchased at the start of the year for $5 is retroactively revalued as $3.33. And this is what causes the rate of profit to rise. He goes on to say, I'm not suggesting that the decline in the value of the seed corn should actually cause the rate of profit to fall. As Marx recognized, the cheapening of means of production does reduce the capital value advanced, and thus it tends to counteract the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. My point is simply that it cannot do so retroactively. Owing to the fall in the value of corn during year three, so that the value of the, the corn has fallen from five bucks to $3.33, the capital advance in year four will be smaller than otherwise, all else being equal. Year four's rate of profit will consequently be greater than otherwise. But the fall in the value of corn during the course of year three cannot retroactively reduce the capital value that was advanced at the start of year three. What's done is done. Yeah, I think that that's the entire chapter. You cannot re retroactively go back in time and change how much money you put in to your investment. If you could, we would live in a, a very different universe. If you could, then, then yeah, the rate of profit would rise, but that's not the world we live in. We produced corn in year two for 500. Uh, we have 500 bucks worth of corn in the bank. We invest them. That should be $500 is our investment for year three on january 1st we have 500 bucks worth of friggin corn that's not what happens in in simultaneous evaluation because by december 31st because of technological progress the corn isn't worth it as much anymore it's only worth 3.33 and so in the simultaneous world the accountants at seed corp uh, will be very happy because they can just go back, cook the books, and say that, oh, actually, we did not invest 500. We only invested 333. And that's sort of the, the, the gist of this chapter. I think it's, it's almost like with that sentence, the rest of the chapter is superfluous. <laughs> and obviously, people that are doing simultaneous valuation don't think that, you know, when people are making investments, they go back in time and change them according to money now. But there is some kind of funny adjustment of units that, I mean, you know, dollars are already suggest a comparison to dollars, but economists that are used to calculating like rates of inflation or that kind of thing are thinking to themselves, well, we need like 
to compare with like. So we need this to be dollars at time, you know, T. And, you know, we're going to measure everything in dollars at time T or something. And that's just, um, that's a conflicting intuition to, yeah. what, to what's going on in Marxist economics, for sure. One point I, I would just like to bring up in the simultaneous way of calculating things, you don't start with investment. To me, and I think it's obvious to Kleiman as well, Marx's economic, macroeconomic model is an investment first model. Mr. Moneybags has a million dollars. He puts it into his bank account. He buys machinery, he buys labor power and so on. It's an investment first model. And the TSSI is investment first. It's going to take the TSSI would look at the output of year two, 500 bucks and say that, all right, on January 1st, you're going to have 500 bucks in your bank account. The, the capital advanced is already known. Whereas in the simultaneous camp, the capital advanced is not known, but rather calculated. And how do, do they calculate it? Well, they look at how much seed corn did you plant? The gnome accountants, uh, Fantasy Seed Corp Inc. are going to say, well, we planted 100 seeds. And the simultaneous economist will ask, well, how much is every seed worth? And they're going to say, well, every seed corn now, due to technological changes, only worth 3.33 bucks. Aha. So therefore, your capital investment is 333. It's calculated rather than given by the actual amount of cash you really, as a matter of indubitable fact, have in the bank. And this is sort of at the, at the crux of the, of the issue. It's a small point, but I think it's an important one. Lexi, do you want to read that paragraph there? This is where Andrew says the exact point as far as I know. Let's do it. The same thing holds true in the case of fixed capital. When declining prices cause the value of fixed assets to fall, a company cannot simply declare that it invested less to acquire those assets than it actually invested. The size of its investment can only be reduced by taking a loss or by increasing the company's depreciation expense, both of which lower its rate of profit. Here again, it is only the rate of profit of subsequent years, not the current year's rate, which tends to rise as a result of the cheapening of means of production. And that is at John Romer, who extended the Okishio theorem for fixed capital. Let's just take a moment and, 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 and like appreciate in what kind of world we would live in if this were true. Imagine you, you buy a house for, I don't know what a house costs in the U.S., let's say a million dollars, right? And you finance all of that with a bank. Fair. Right, okay. So you, you go to the bank and you say, hey, I want to, I want to borrow a million dollars, please. And they say, all right, here you go. You're, you're a trustworthy fella. And you buy a house, so all of your million dollars are now bound up in, in the house. Next year, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae goes, goes bankrupt and there's a housing crisis. And now the, the, your house is only worth 500000 And the bank comes knocking on your door saying, hey, we would like that money back now, please. Could we have our million dollars? And you say, what million dollars? I only borrowed 500000 <laughs> You know, 
the value of of the house right now is five hundred thousand. So that means my initial investment was five hundred thousand. I never borrowed a million from you. I owe you five hundred thousand bucks. What the fuck is the big deal? Like, imagine if it's in that kind of world. Like, capitalism could not operate if, if this were the case. Imagine you say to them, "Okay, take the house." You know what will happen to the bank? The bank will book that house on the current market value at five hundred grand, and they'll take a half a million dollar loss. And they'll go bust. Yeah, but the simultaneists will say that no, you paid back the full value of that house because your initial investment was only five hundred thousand, since that's what the house is actually worth. This is what happens, Larry, when the capital invested is not given. Right in capitalist societies. What do capitalists care about? Well, they they know how much they invested. They know that yeah, okay, if I buy Apple stock for a thousand dollars, right? I know I bought it for a thousand dollars. Like that's the that's the that's a number that's in my head. Where I know I bought a house for a million dollars. Where I know I lended a hundred thousand to someone. Like that's what I care about. I, I don't I don't go back in time later and say, oh, well, the value of the house or the, the value of, of Apple stock has changed. So that means that when I bought them for a thousand for, for ten thousand dollars, I didn't really buy it for ten thousand. I only bought it for, I don't know, five thousand or or whatever. No, you put down ten thousand dollars in your investment and you ex- you expect a return over and above those ten thousand. That's how capitalism works. You're going to go to jail and pay really fucking hefty fines if you try to go back and change the amount of your initial investment in a company. That's just not how things work. But like, even if you could get, get away with it legally, it's still still not what capitalists care about. In all capitalist societies, your investment is a known quantity. It's not something you calculate by going back in time or whatever. It's not a variable that you derive from an equation. You know how much money you paid for stuff. That's that's like the defining feature of capitalism, <laughs> which just makes it so strange that, like how would anyone think that this is the way things operate? I, it's, it's just- Nobody thinks it's the way things operate. They think it's a, an unrealistic assumption that they can use yeah. realistic- yeah predictions, which again is endemic in economic methodology. And really you'd probably better off studying finance models or accounting math or just about anything else to get a real world grasp of what's going on. Okay. I think we should move on here to the next sub 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 chapter, which is the defense of it from the simultaneists. So they, they kind of make the case that this replacement cost rate is a meaningful measure of profit because it is the potential rate and therefore the rate that governments current business investments. Okay, so let's have a look here, this paragraph here. For example, if a business invested two grand for the purchase of a machine and the investment $100 each year, the annual rate of profit would be $100 over two grand, which would be 5%. However, the simultaneous argument goes, if the machine can be replaced today for just one grand, then the potential rate of profit, the rate that can be obtained by investing in the replacement machine, is $100 over $1,000, so it's 
So a business investor whose other alternative investment is, say, a, an investment that yields 6% would decide to invest in the machine instead, even though the machines of this kind have only yielded 5% rate of profit in the past. They say this is a meaningful measure. It's definitely a measure of something, you know. Yeah, it's a measure of people calculate loss on things. Like, oh, damn, if I only had waited six months so that the new iPhone was cheaper, I would have gotten away with with half of the money that I paid. But now I'm stuck with, you know, $1,000 less or, or, or whatnot. They're what? trying to say that that as a measure, it's meaningful, as in that it's like an investment rate of profit, if you know what I mean. It's like a potential investment rate of profit. Yeah, but like again, yeah. that's not how capitalism works. Like if, if oh, if, I agree, I agree. Right, right. But the, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm just ranting at this because right, and I understand why. Subchapter like maybe lose my shit. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's just that in this book, at least the strongest forms of these arguments, the forms of these arguments that I think are most convincing is you say, none of these methodological moves are necessarily, you know, by themselves disallowed or useless or bullshit. It's just, you know, does this work for what you're trying to do with it? And for trying to model Marx with it, it's bullshit. Let's just read this, because I think this is important here. Yet, even if we were to grant the legitimacy of the replacement cost rate of profit, for the sake of argument, the issue here is whether simultaneous interpretations are adequate as interpretations of, of Marx's long-term falling rate of profit. Is the replacement cost of profit a correct measure of the rate of profit to which the law refers? And he says, it's clearly not. One cannot deduce the long-term falling rate of profit from Marx's premises when the replacement cost is used. It never tends to fall as a result of rising productivity. Hence, the replacement cost interpretation creates an avoidable inconsistency in the text. This alone strongly suggests that the rate of profit to which the law refers is determined temporarily, not simultaneously. There's one quote here from, from Marx where he talks about it. These ones here, just kind of slam dunk. When first introducing the concept of surplus value and capital, he defined it as the difference between the sum of money that is finally withdrawn for circulation and the original sum thrown into it at the beginning, the excess over the original value. He also regularly defined profit as an excess over and above the total capital advanced. You can't use that previous one when you're talking about what Marx was talking about. It's just, it's just apples and oranges. It's just apples and oranges. But 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 like what what bothers me with this is like no one thinks of profit in any other way except apparently for these or or rather the the models of the the, the simultaneous economists. I I don't think the economists themselves necessarily believe that's that's the case. But the that's the result of the models. You know you're right. There's maybe there's some exceptions in the chat. Let us know. But I know of nowhere else where that kind of thing is taken all that seriously than in, you know, bourgeois economics and in these, you know, peripheral forms of heterodox economics that are taking on this methodology. It is difficult, especially after 2008, to not see the way that bourgeois economics approaches the economy as, you know, ideological parlor tricks. And I struggle to be charitable about it. <laughs> but I think I think the obvious thing is that there 
these assumptions are not, you know, realistic assumptions. They're not fitting assumptions, which is more important. This also is the basis for microeconomic like game theory as well. So it's just, um, it's just a school right. of thought that crosses micro macro in economics. You might say neoclassical economics. I mean, you know, that's right. Shorthand looking backwards, but I think that's what I would call it. If the implication of, of neoclassical economics, I, I don't know that much of neoclassical economics. All I know from macroeconomics is Marx and that I know business economics and they're pretty much the same thing. But if the neoclassical economists don't think of profit in the way that everyone is doing and, and, and even the, 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 the like intuitive idea of, of, of profit, then I have no idea what, what the hell it is they're doing. Like, I, I feel like, like I'm, I'm, I was like, yeah. what are these people doing? There, there was an incident uh, after the financial crisis where the Queen of England approached a bunch of the top economists in England and just sort of asked, why didn't you see this coming? And without being too vulgar about it, I think assumptions like these might be a short answer. Let's move on to table 7.3, which is an interesting table. Okay, so... These simultaneous interpretations arrive at the paradoxical conclusion that Marx's rate of profit is identical to the physical rate. As we have seen, the source of this paradox is that simultaneous valuation causes a portion to be conjured away. The following then question then arises, might it be the case that after this error is corrected, okay, so we don't throw away that bit of value that we, were, we saw on the previous table, the rate of profit still turns out to be physically determined. So he's going to basically rebuild another table here and going to do it in such a way that essentially we're going to assume the physical rate of profit, okay? And we're going to do it temporally and we're going to have a look and see what happens to everything, okay? So let, let's have a look at this table. Now, he's going to start off here with 320 bushels of corn. And he's going to assume this rate of profit over here, the physicalist rate of profit is 25%. So he goes, the new value then will be 80 and 32 and 80, or 320 and 80 is 400. And so we got a 25% rate of profit by definition. And if we look at the price, then will be the total value divided by the, the physical number of physical output, 80, and it's going to be five. Okay. So the price in is the same as the price out. Everything's good. Everything's dandy. The second year, the same thing happens. We now have our four, our 400. We've got 25% rate of profit. And it gives us our new value, 100. And go, add the two of them get together, we get 500. And our P out is still five. Okay? So all going good. Now let's have a look and see what happens when we get to year three. Okay, so let's have a look here. When we do it again, we assume it's going to be 30%. Okay, we're assuming the physical rate of profit. We get 150, we get 650, then in total, we get our 500 constant capital and our 150 new value. So we get 650, okay? And we divide 650 by the 130, our, our physical outputs, and we get five for the value, okay? Again, the next year, we do the same again, and our rate of profit gives us 875. And what we've seen here is our price out is five quid. So what is happening when we do it temporarily, 
and our rate of profit is determined physically, we figure out that the price, the unit price, what happens to it? It doesn't go down. Okay. So if we assume the rate of profit is physically determined and we are using less and less labor, what happens? Our price stays static. So it is essentially saying that improvements in productivity of labor productivity is not linked to falls in prices. Does that make sense? If we look here, it says, indeed, this is just Andrew writing it. Indeed, if we if we divide the new value added by table 7.1's net product figures, we find that the new value is a constant $5 per bushel. A bushel of net product always yields the same amount of value independently of any variations in the amount of labor needed to produce it. Physical output has replaced labor time as the determinant of value. Okay, if you try and do it temporally and you you say the physical rate is what determines the rate of profit, labor time goes out the window. He goes on to say, this result makes clear that the actual rate of profit mirrors the physical rate only if increases of productivity do not tend to lower values or prices. Physicalism is incompatible with the fact, widely recognized even by non-Marxists like Alan Greenspan, that prices do tend to fall as a result of increasing productivity. Let's let's quote Alan Greenspan because we've had we've been doing a lot. We've been doing a lot about Marx, right? And I know Marx is a good thinker, but we haven't given like the greatest economist of all time, Greenspan, his, <laughs> his fair share of airtime. Let's read this one. From 2000. You did. You take it, Lexi, because you've got the yeah. best Alan Greenspan impersonation. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm a big Greenspan fan. You know, like the way people watch the West Wing. That's That's how I was watching his speeches growing up. I'm completely joking. Faster productivity growth keeps a lid on unit costs and prices. Firms hesitate to raise prices for fear that their competitors will be able, with lower costs from new investments, to wrest market share from them. Indeed, the increased availability of labor displacing equipment and software at declining prices and improving delivery times is arguably at the root of the loss of business pricing power in recent years. Now, you have to wonder as an who I have to assume is an educated economist and Alan Greenspan, he maybe said those lines with extreme trepidation for he probably understands the classical heritage of the falling rate of profit and what a troubling thing it was. I, I just have to imagine what he was thinking. Maybe he was on some kind of, I don't know, what's the word, uh, benzodiazepine or something to kind of make him chill, you know, but like, I would be panicking a little bit. That's just me. It reminds me of, I did a show for the podcast years ago and I managed to find, I don't know which episode is in it. Maybe somebody else will remember, but an episode where a, a clip in it of a speech by Milton Friedman, where he made such a Marxist point. He talked about capitalism, how work and the world are exchanging products, which are a measure of their labor. The basic principles underlying the free market, as Adam Smith taught them to his students in this university, are really very simple. Look at this lead pencil. There's not a single person in the world who could make this pencil. Remarkable statement? Not at all. The wood from which it's made 
for all I know, comes from a tree that was cut down in the state of Washington. To cut down that tree, it took a saw. To make the saw, it took steel. To make the steel, it took iron ore. This black center, we call it lead, but it's really graphite, compressed graphite. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I think it comes from some mines in South America. This red top up here, the eraser, bit of rubber, probably comes from Malaya, where the rubber tree isn't even native. It was imported from South America by some businessmen with the help of the British government. This brass ferrule, I haven't the slightest idea where it came from, or the yellow paint, or the paint that made the black lines, or the glue that holds it together. Literally thousands of people cooperated to make this pencil. People who don't speak the same language, who practice different religions, who might hate one another if they ever met. When you go down to the store and buy this pencil, you are in effect trading a few minutes of your time for a few seconds of the time of all those thousands of people. What brought them together and induced them to cooperate to make this pencil? There was no commissar sending out offices from, sending out orders from some central office. It was a magic of the price system, the impersonal operation of prices that brought them together and got them to cooperate to make this pencil so that you could have it for a trifling sum. That is why the operation of the free market is so essential, not only to promote productive efficiency, but even more to foster harmony and peace among the peoples of the world. It's one of those horseshoe things. Like it's the reason I think the Financial Times is the best bourgeois paper, you know, instead of getting some like mediated version through the New York Times or some, you know, feel good liberal stuff thrown on there. Just read what the heartless financiers read, you know, if you can. It's the ruling class talking to each other. It's interesting also, like if you read the old classical political economists, a lot of them were very plain speaking about the realities of the economy. When it became easier, the texts were easier for like the layman to read. They started to disguise through other means what the reality of what they talk about you know, the theories had to become more obscure. Well, I wonder in my like scientific heart of hearts, how abstract can you get from all that like gobbledygook math that's going to make most people's eyes glaze over and still paint an honest and comprehensive and sort of like systematically useful picture that can be like mobilized. I don't know. That's an aside point. I wonder. I wonder how much of that stuff is necessary. And because I think some of it has to be, <laughs> I think some of the inconveniently hard math has to be necessary, but not all of it.